Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to episode 47 of Time Sensitive. On this episode, Spencer's in conversation with the artist Kevin Beasley. What did you guys talk about? So first off, normally we have artists or others on the podcast who tend to be a bit older, not in their 30s. Mm. Kevin's 36. And what was special about that to me was that he's got a lot to say as a young artist, but he's also got a lot to say because of where he is at in his work and in his practice. And what's also great is that when you talk to an artist who hasn't had tons and tons and tons of interviews, there's a lot to unpack. And so I also realized during the research that he was a drummer. Mm. That was the way in. We we talk about that, about the role of rhythm in his life and work. Because you're a drummer. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was true. And we could nerd out on that a little bit, but we also got into his artistic practice in relationship to the senses. Mm. His work is very much about tactility. Sound is something he does a lot with. We also got into resin, why he uses resin, sort of as a mode of encasing objects. And Did you get to the Whitney show? We did. Yeah. Uh, the Whitney show is probably how most people know about him, mm-hmm. this exhibition, A View of a Landscape, which was in 2018, and the experience that informed that show. The centerpiece, of course, was this cotton gin motor that he had acquired and um, turned into an installation. I won't get into it here, but we do go deep into the story of how he acquired that motor and the, the path to turning it into a work of art. I'm looking forward to hearing it. But before we get into it, uh, we'd first like to thank our season three sponsor, the German watchmaker, Alanga and Zuna. To me, what makes Alanga watch so special is that each watch is the result of incredibly intricate craftsmanship, which you can not only see, but you can really feel. Mm -hmm. If you were to visit the company in Glashütte in Saxony, Germany, you would observe the passion of its artisans and their attention to detail firsthand. Alanga Watch is all about perfection down to the smallest details. Yeah, I mean, each component of an Alanga and Zuna watch is lavishly decorated with its own specific type of finishing. And this is whether you see it through a crystal sapphire case back or not, this is something that's always just felt in the watch. So no matter how small each part might be, each must comply with the company's rigorous artisanal and aesthetic standards. It can take several months of practice just to perfectly execute a flat polish finish. While in chamfering, great emphasis is placed on assuring that the edges are not only beveled to the same angle, but also to the same width. There's also this really special type of finish that they, they reserve for the balance cock. It's engraved with this distinctive Longa-style floral pattern, but one of only six engravers can do that. So each Langa watch is a truly unique work of art. Mm-hmm. To find out more about Alanganzuna's finishing and engraving techniques, visit www.alange-soehne.com. And now, here's Spencer and Kevin. 
Kevin, welcome to Time Sensitive. It's great to have you in the studio today. Thanks for inviting me. So I wanted to begin our conversation on the subject of drumming and rhythm. I understand you study drums, and I heard you playing a bit on an Art 21 video about your work. When did drumming come into the picture for you? Wow. So uh, drumming came at a really early age. I was in middle school, actually, and it's so funny. I had this experience where I was in band, I was in concert band, mm -hmm. and when percussion tryouts opened up, I was like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to do that because that's what I want to do. Right. Like I want to play the drums. I want to do percussion. And this is like maybe sixth grade or seventh grade or something. And I was playing trumpet and I showed up to the percussion practice and the band teacher was like, no, you, you, can't, you can't do it. You can't you can't uh, you can't try out for for percussion. And so I, I left and I was like, all right. And like I, he didn't really explain why. Mm -hmm. um, but then the next day I was like, you know, he held me back after the class and said, you know, I wanted to let you know that, you know, it wasn't that I didn't want you to learn to play percussion, but you're my trumpet player. And so I, I need you to play trumpet. So that was like the first instance where I felt like, you know, I was denied something mm. because of someone else's mm. idea idea around it, which ultimately was totally fine. And I think his understanding of my commitment to music was really important. And that was something that he also cultivated. But it was a little funky in that way. So from there on, I played I played air drums until my parents we're like, we can't have him spazzing out in the back of the car <laughs> like this. And they got me a drum set in eighth grade for, for Christmas. And they thought I would give it up in like three, four months. And I just kept playing. I was playing like hours and hours, maybe six, seven hours a day. Mm. And they were like, he needs to get lessons because he's not going to quit. And if we have to listen to this all day, it needs to be really good. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's kind of how it started. My parents were supportive in that way. And I I was taking jazz drumming lessons from uh, just a local drummer who also taught at the music store. Mm. His name was Larry Scott. And he kind of opened me up to just like listening to a variety of music, but listening to to play, listening to articulate rhythmically what was what the feeling of the music was, even if I wasn't playing mm. explicitly what the other drummer was playing, how do you like capture a sort of rhythmic essence? Having these kinds of understandings around music and around listening really early on then became like, okay, well then I can, I can improvise and I can, I can try things while I'm listening. I'm not, it's not about playing exactly what they're playing and studying that in that way which I also did, that's kind of the natural inclination is you hear it and you want to replicate it. But very early on to try and think about, well, how do you, how do you really understand those patterns? Mm -hmm. um, and so I never like formally played for any like, you know, school bands or any training in that way. Um, it was just from just listening and, and continuing to play and played in a couple like bands, bands, mm -hmm. but that yeah 
who were some of the drummers that you were listening to, or what was some of the music that was? So uh, Will Kennedy, Dennis Chambers, Billy Cobham, like Fusion, and then like you know Elvin Jones, Jack DeJohnette, uh Buddy Rich. Yeah, there was a wide variety of different kinds of drummers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also was really into like metal and progressive music. So I listened to Tool a lot. So Danny Carey, mm-hmm. Neil Peart was a drummer that I, I listened to a Rush. lot. Rush, yeah. I, you know, it was really, it was, it was like any kind of drumming style or anything. I like developed an ability to play um no doubt's tragic kingdom from start to finish because <laughs> that was just like that was a record that i really loved and i was like this is amazing i'm gonna learn every single lick every like bit of it and i'm just gonna listen to the album and play it like straight on so and since then i think there you know there's several musicians and drummers that i've mm. continued to kind of listen to and appreciate mm. You also have an interest in speaker building, and mm-hmm. I read that you used to DJ at Yale house parties. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, when when did your uh, DJ work, if we could call it that, <laughs> come into the picture, and how do you view all of this, like the the DJing, the drumming, the speaker building, in the context of your own art making? Music making was always separate for me and art making, right, or visual art making, and. I would play in bands and I would listen to music and I'd play the drums and experiment with different, different kinds of things. And I kept it pretty separate. And it wasn't until I got into uh, graduate school that these things became merged into one, even though like when I was living in Detroit, my studio was also where I practiced with my band. It was like all Mm -hmm. encompassing, but really those house parties or studio parties at Yale was when I realized I needed to DJ because the music selection was really bad. <laughs> um, I I just couldn't, you know, I like to dance and it's a big relief and release when you're in graduate school to just to be dancing. The movement, the physicality of it, mm-hmm. the the listening to the music, the, you know, the partying, whatever that is, it's just, it's just essential. But I couldn't get into it because the music was really terrible. It was like top 40, you know. And I felt like I had an eclectic taste in music. And I felt like in art school, people would 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 be open to an eclectic taste of dance music. And so that's when I started DJing. Mm. It was actually like, all right, I think I, I listened to a variety of dance music. And the music that I, you know, want to hear on the dance floor I should just play that and see if anyone else would be interested in the same thing. Mm. So that started the whole, you know, getting the <laughs> Basically ma- making terrible parties a little less terrible. Less terrible. And, <laughs> you know, that was like 2010. So mm. the club scene in New York was still really vibrant. Mm-hmm. You know, ghetto gothic was classmates and I would just go down to New York for ghetto goth parties and uh, Venus X. Shout out to Venus X. And and whatever else was happening. So like there were a lot of labels that were hosting parties and you had spaces like 285 Kent and Glasslands and, you know, random warehouses that were still like still happening in New York in some way. And that just further propelled, you know, the dig into the music, wanting to DJ, not to mention 
living in Detroit for like seven, eight mm-hmm. years, which is like dance music. Like that was where I was like getting a lot of the stuff that I really loved. It's a lot of just Detroit techno. And then thinking about, oh, I can, I should DJ some of this stuff. So that started happening. The moment it became apparent that this was very much so a part of my practice was was really using turntables to manipulate sound and music. As a DJ, you're constantly mixing, you're thinking about the structure of the music, you're thinking of the feeling of it, mm. all of this stuff. And, and, at, and at high volume, so like the space that you're in, the way it reverberates the space, um, being in clubs and that atmosphere, all of that really contributed to me really rethinking my relationship, my understanding around music Mm. as not this sort of formal abstract process that was only about music composition and music theory, but was more about affect and a kind of physical presence, right? And just scratching, hearing one sound and then physically moving this thing and then you automatically generate something else is just like working with physical materials in the Mm. studio. And I was like looking at them side by side and was like, aha, okay. (laughs) I'm like, what have I been doing? You know? So then the, the music became not less important, but it became expanded for me. And I started Mm. thinking about just sound in general and how that can be shaped and understood in physical spaces, which right. then leads to like speaker building, you know, it's like multi-purpose, right? Like how do I make a really amazing party mm-hmm. with great speaker system? But then also how do I understand its effects on a physical space? Mm. And then there's a social impact to that. There's a political impact to that. There's all of these things, you know, you, speakers are bi- bigger than people or, you know, it affects more people in positive and negative ways and can be weaponized. It can be used to bring joy, all of these things. Mm. So that spectrum then started, I started really thinking about the consequences of, of those. And that felt more like an artistic practice. Yeah. This physicality idea, I think it's interesting in the context that we're sitting in the same room right now. Like, you know, if we were having this conversation behind screens or in some other kind of space, maybe as a loud echoey space, our conversation would probably be different. The way we respond to each other would probably be different. And so it's interesting how sound plays this very physical role. The word vibration comes to mind for me, like thinking about bodily vibration. And when I think about your performance works, your sound works, so much of it is about bodily vibration. How do you think about this notion of like internal vibration, I guess, how you feel on the insides and, and how that, that effect, which can be very profound. I think it's central to a lot of the things that I'm doing and thinking about sound waves moving through matter and the density of that matter, its makeup, if the matter is in motion or if it's static, how that then affects Mm. how you hear it, but then also how you feel it. I can't not think about sound as a physical sensation And particularly when you get into lower frequencies, but just the fact that 
when you're not hearing something, it's it's because the mm. the the matter that it's moving through isn't carrying it, and it it gets dispersed, and that shift, whatever that thing is, that's either limiting it or amplifying that sound, it, there's a major consequence to that. And so all of those vibrations, how you're hearing them and how you're feeling them become so important to understanding the source that produced the sound, uh, but then also its environment and its atmosphere. Mm. So the vibration becomes like a way of understanding your body and its nuances, its age, its, you know, is trials and tribulations. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, thinking it's like everything that you, yeah, that you're experiencing, I think gets conjured up through those vibrations. It's like muscle memory. Yeah. I mean, one of your earlier sound performances about a decade ago was I want my spot back at MoMA. And you filled the atrium there with this loud kind of obtrusive sound Got a lot of complaints. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you you were particularly interested, though, in pulling from these acapella tracks yeah. uh, from like old hip hop albums. Yeah. And central to that was the act of breathing, which, of course, connects back to rhythm. So I was wondering, you know, could you speak to that? Like, what was your approach to this piece and, and what role was breathing playing in it? Mm, yeah, I felt like. The acapellas gave me a lot of information about their production. And obviously they're the artists, the people that were behind mm. those those sounds, right? Like the the rappers themselves. And the acapellas give you a kind of way in and the space between the mm. the way the lips like produce you know, what is it, the ASMR, like the yeah. way that like all, all of this like it's like the yeah, the, the, you know, uh, I'm not going to like go crazy into the microphone now with this stuff. But, but, but yeah, you think about Biggie yeah. and a lot of what Biggie yeah. did was kind of ASMR. Yeah, yeah, totally. And his breathing was very distinct. You could hear it. It's like if you could just chop up all of the breathing of just Biggie and listen to it, you'd be like, oh, that's Biggie Smalls, right? Like. It was so it was so much a part of his mm -hmm. delivery. And I wanted to kind of hear that as closely as possible as a way of just like kind of stripping the music down because there's a lot around it. So the breathing was, I think, was something that I was trying to get to. And, and my emphasis on it or thinking around it was like developing a tool that then I could I could then work with mm. and do other things with. And yeah, those acapellas, I think, were really, they're really revealing because not all of them were like of high quality. It was just like really trying to capture what was out there. There were some old Dirty Bastard acapellas that were part of Wu-Tang songs that were on vinyl. They would have maybe like three different versions of one song. One would be an instrumental, one would be acapella, and you could like remix it up. And it's like for DJ, like promo stuff. Mm. And uh, so that kind of searching for things was really important, but just this like one objective. It's like, all right, let's like capture the texture of the voice and then see what's possible. Mm. How did you respond to the audience there? You know, I, I really couldn't because I was just in it. I was immersed in the performance and 
it was two days. And I think that um, Jenny Schlenska, who was the curator at the time, who had organized that with Ralph Lemon, she kind of shielded me from some of that <laughs> by not by not like telling me what the audience reaction was. I think Ralph was doing the same thing. But I think afterwards it was like, oh, like there were complaints throughout the whole building. And like I had um, a friend who was videoing a, a, a Richter, Gerhard Richter, that was on the wall and he could you could like see it vibrating. And the other funny part about it was that the scream had arrived that week. The and, Munch painting. Yeah. And, you know, they had this exhibition that was opening and there was a lot of frenzy around seeing that. And yeah. And then like right in the middle of that week, I had my performance and its I own kind of scream, I guess. Its own scream, its own <laughs> kind of rupture in the in the in the, the thought of like the thought of ODB making a Gerhard Richter painting shake is kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm like ODB has never been so prominent in this space ever prior to this. Um, neither has Tupac or Eazy. It that felt like something I could. I still, it's hard to find language around. Mm what is at its core, but it felt really powerful in that way. The way that that performance textured the space, it felt like that maybe couldn't happen now in Mm. that form. And I think also in a credit to the way that the departments were organized and it still felt early, even though I think MoMA's performance department at that time was maybe around for five years. It wasn't, wasn't like, wasn't like painting and, and sculpture, mm. you know? What, what for you was going through your mind in terms of time during that performance? Like how did time pass? It felt like it was really quick actually. And I was kind of racing against it to try to get this, the stuff out. Right. Because the the way it's performed is, you know, I have like 49 or 39 tracks that I've developed. And in each track, I can further manipulate them in the performance itself. So just playing two tracks at once and then trying to like explore it and expand it. And, you know, you slow things down to try to bring low frequencies in or speed things up and you're adding effects on the fly to see how they carry in the space, see how they respond. So there's a lot of listening. And I felt like, man, I'm running out of time. Like this thing's only supposed to be an hour, which is also on the other end for people who are listening is a really long time to be listening to sound at such high volumes and uh, with such density. But I was like, oh man, I got to get to this. I got to get to this. I have a few marks that I need to, reach Mm. so the time really felt like there was just not enough time to explore what is contained within it and what the possibilities are because the work is i feel is a a generative one because it takes something and tries to find other possibilities Mm. that are embedded inside of it but how we perceive it and how we understand it i think need needs more work and needs more time so (laughs) it's like the time didn't feel like it was enough, mm. you know. 
breathing also comes into play in your work. Your face is, is not enough, which is a performance you did at Renaissance society in Chicago in 2016. Mm. Talk about breathing in this context. Cause it's very different. Yeah. The breathing I think is really essential. Like there's a power in breathing and you have to find that and you have to protect that and you have to practice that. And you have to um, exercise it. And in that work, I think so much of it is about that. You know, there's a score and in the score, you know, the performers are instructed to, to exert like, a, like an awe sound. And then for as long as they can. And then they take three breaths. And the three breaths after each one of those is it's restorative it's intended to be its own thing so you have these two things that you have to do so in a lot of ways it's 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 a way of recentering and refocusing again and there's this direct relationship to exertion and extending yourself but always knowing that following it is a restorative period Mm. and so and that restorative period isn't just in response to this thing. It needs to be, be given space. It needs to be given strength. It needs to be given importance as if it is the purpose, right? So you could also say that the breathing is the first thing. And then the, these awes that are really extended are the sort of response to that. After you've kind of generated this foundation for yourself, what do you do with it? And the breathing, I think, was really essential in that in that work because it's also amplified. And so people hear it and, you know, hearing someone else breathe can evoke all of these kinds of emotions and thoughts and feelings, whether it's anxiety about hearing someone breathe or trying to breathe or hearing someone breathe gives you a a sense of calm to know that someone is taking their time and they're just they're they're present in that way um there are there are certain associations to it and as an audience i think you you then are are trying to reconcile that for yourself so you're mm. you're immediately implicated the installation contains uh, i think it's 12 masks and 12 megaphones and so taking a megaphone and just like breathing into a megaphone is really powerful and i'm like maybe words are not needed maybe it's it's this breathing this Mm. thing and what does that sound like at really high levels it's an emotional one it's a meditative one it's spiritual in a lot of ways rhythmic too rhythmically i think you know that's where you you start to find people's own sense of expression their own rhythm their own character their own nature all of this stuff starts to happen and you realize it in this performance because everyone starts out together and then at the end and throughout there's this weaving that happens and people are going at their own pace the the sound of each person's breathing is very different and the rhythms are really different and then you find rhythms where people are doing them together and then you hear it together. So once you hear it together, then you're like, oh, okay, maybe I can, maybe I can do that, right? I can, I can share this, this moment or this thing with with the person next to me. 
that performance has happened multiple times mm -hmm. and each time it's very different, but it's, it's really powerful each time. And I think it continues to grow and change in those subsequent performances. Mm. You primarily make sculptures. We haven't really talked about that. <laughs> yeah. But I was wondering, could you speak to sound just a little bit more and, and, and particularly how it has become a way for you to process the world? Oh, yeah. I feel like I say this a lot because I, it's something that I found initially as, as something that I enjoyed first off, right? Like I love listening to things. <laughs> love hearing things, but it's also a way that I, I feel like I've developed a muscle for just like listening to something and then learning and gaining from that. Mm. And then being able to then say, well, maybe I should react or respond differently, or maybe I should change something about myself based on that. And it could just be from something that you hear or something that you, that you experience through your senses. And I think that applies to anything, right? Like it's touch, it's sight. It's like your senses are ways of understanding. And for me, I've really relied on, on listening to whether it's environment, it's the environment, whether it's music, words, it's, it's like someone telling you straight up, like, I don't like that. And you're like, all right. I'm going to listen to that. <laughs> like I, you know, I can, I can process that and I can do something different based on that, that level of communication based on, you know, the reads of that. And I've always found that, you know, when I was making music, there was always a channeling and the process of that channeling is very, it's very difficult to really, to know that the thing that you're doing is also how you feel. Mm. So you just, you do it. And in the repetition and not necessarily repetitive as in it's the same thing, but the repetition in the exercise, the repetition in the, in the expression, you begin to notice the nuances and the changes and the evolution of something. So the revisiting gives you more information. It accumulates and it's like listening to an improvisation on a theme and then the revisiting of that theme in another improvisation, those things begin to accumulate, they start to build. Mm. So I feel like I began to understand things more in depth, not just from one listen, but from the revisiting based on the the context, the space, the time, all of these other variables. And you begin to get a more, I guess, three-dimensional understanding, hmm. multi-dimensional understanding of what you're hearing or what you're listening to. And that I really love because I also think about that visually, right? And, you know, you're you're sort of constantly building, building an understanding based on this collection or this accumulation of images or of things that you're, you're seeing. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, I mean, to, to me, like listening kind of connects to this idea of presence and, you know, the notion of being truly physically present, but also mentally present. And yeah. it's kind of this notion of, of headspace of taking the time to 
engage with something. And, you know, your work is so multi-layered and really requires that kind of engagement. And so I was wondering if, if that's part of your intent with the work is to get people to really like slow down, pay more attention, listen, think, and actually in in so many ways deal with the raw or difficult subject matter that's underlying it. Yeah. I mean, that's at its core. I think that's, I feel like that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Right. Like just as a person in the world. So I think <laughs> beyond being be, an artist beyond. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then like, I think the exchange between the work and, and an audience or a visitor grows and gains from that, that time spent. And we don't necessarily always have that. Mm-hmm. So I always try to like build in this understanding that, you know, I love the word accumulation because I just think so much about, you know, your experience with something doesn't necessarily have to be complete. You don't have to fully understand what it is that you are dealing with. And it takes time. It takes a revisitation. And that is okay. Mm -hmm. Because that speaks very specifically to a process of learning and a process of understanding and that the growth and evolution of something is a long path. I feel like the work is so much about about that because I there's just too much packed in. There's too much there. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking immediately right now of Strange Fruit, your work, yeah. part one, which is this assemblage, or you could call it an accumulation, <laughs> I guess, yeah. of speakers and sneakers that are dangling from this rope on the ceiling and it combines both sort of this physical and sonic element there's so much metaphor embedded within it i've seen it in two different galleries and both times had a different experience kind of engaging with the work yet at the same time it's it's very direct it's not so subtle but it doesn't hit people over the head there's this this sort of fine line that you find i was wondering if you could speak to that and more generally kind of how you think about creating narrative out of this material and the sound and the objects. Yeah. We're talking about going through this past year and the pandemic and like still trying to, you know, experience and still trying to recognize nuance and subtlety when things are like very Mm -hmm. hectic and scary in a lot of ways, because I think that the nuance gives you, an understanding of an edge. It gives you the the texture, the quality of an edge. It allows you to like really assess what your relationship is to it and maybe the feasibility of being able to manage it. Mm-hmm. So the nuance of something, I think it doesn't happen if we're using, you know, blunt objects to like, you know, to communicate something, even when I think with that work, it's, it's extremely blunt. Oh yeah, totally. It's like very much. You could um, call Air Jordans a blunt object if you actually understand how you're framing it. Yeah, right. So that to me feels like, okay, how do you confront things that are very forward and very blunt in that way, but allowing there to be room to move through what they are and move through your understanding of them, which is, I think, about kind of reconciling those circumstances reconciling the difficulties that you have of understanding it, confronting those things and not Mm. feeling like 
it isn't possible. And the generative aspect of it, I think, within art making and within the experience of art allows for those other possibilities, which then says, well, the violence that is inherently a part of this is something that is inherently a part of our everyday. But there are generative ways of getting through this. And that to me is where that's like the work, you know, I go to the studio to try to like refine that. And it's really difficult. <laughs> it's really hard, but it's something I find to be necessary and, and it's rooted. And I think in art making your practice allows for the practice to, to address form and aesthetics and things that, that may uh, open up the possibility of, of, of reconciling these issues mm. and your relationship to them. I mean, we've talked about the role of hearing, but I wanted to also bring up touch, this notion of, you know, texture, tactility, which is so at the core of your work. And you're exploring history and memory through these garments that you select or the different materials you choose to use. How do you view the role of touch figuratively and literally in your work? Yeah. I have a conundrum, right? Because I want people to touch the works in a lot of different ways. Not everything, mm -hmm. because some of it's just not conducive to that. But I do like what is gained from physically touching and physically understanding these things. But the work is presented in institutions where there's no touching allowed at all. So... You know, when I think about touch in my practice, I can't divorce it from the 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 context that they're always experienced in. And I think the touch is then something that it's like, man, that looks good. You know, <laughs> it's like seeing like a really nicely rendered photo of of a meal that you'd love to eat. And you're like, man, that thing smells. It probably smells really great, you know, <laughs> or I'm real curious about that. Um <laughs> And I and so there's that. And I think in a lot of ways, there is um, there is an understanding that we have based on other experiences that allows you to then enter into the tactility of something. Right. Like that. Maybe you don't necessarily have to touch something mm -hmm. to understand its tactility, its mass and its weight in a way that applies to you as an individual, as an audience. And that. That's where I find like I'm like, OK, that's cool. That's then allowing people to draw into themselves something that that maybe they wouldn't have if they weren't experiencing this work. Mm. But that's something that I'm like really trying to reconcile and re and have constantly been trying to reconcile some of the performance works, sculptural works have contact microphones. And in those performances, you touch them. Strange Fruit, which is on view at the New Museum right now, mm -hmm. is also a work that has a it has a touch component to it. So touching that work gives you a completely different sonic texture than than just the noise that you make into the into the microphones. But I don't think they're going to let you touch that. So. <laughs> it's important. I feel like the the tactility of something, the physicality of something it means a lot to me because it's just something that I, that I need in order to, to navigate. I need to touch that. I need to understand, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand something in depth in a lot of ways. And there are consequences to those things. So wanting to engage in a practice that is very much so 
dealing with the physical and dealing with touch in a lot of ways because there becomes a moment where that's not feasible. That's mm. not possible anymore. Degradation, death, your deterioration, your body, your senses, you lose these things. They're not with you forever. Mm -hmm. They change over time. They yeah. change. Yeah. So that's something that I'm really big into. To make much of your work, there's this act of gathering clothing, which yeah. also is an act of touch. <laughs> and this clearly takes place across time. Tell me about your process and, and the role of time within that process of, of gathering the clothing and then deciding how to use it. Yeah. So the gathering is really varied. A lot of it depends on, you know, like where it's coming from. If it's coming from like myself, then, you know, it's really a matter of like, all right, I'm, I'm not going to wear that anymore. Or this thing would look really nice in a sculpture. So then it becomes a part of the studio. Or if it's clothing from a friend or a relative, then those get kind of roped into I feel like I have a little responsibility around what I do with that, knowing it, where it comes from and everything I really, that comes into the studio, I have to know where it's coming from. I, you know, I don't collect random items, mm. you know, off the street and bring them into the studio because I, I am not engaged in a practice that can really account for all of those things. So I really like to focus on the things that I feel like I can account for. And that then brings the sort of circle really close. So I have like clothes from like my mom and I still haven't done anything with them yet because I'm really, you know, the more I sit on them, the more I'm like, man, what, what does that mean? You know, like, what does that mean to like make objects out of her clothing? And like, what do those objects look like? And so that's something that over time I'm like really trying to figure out, but also let it run its course. Some things don't enter into a work for years. I'll have it and I'll just let it sit for, you know, three, four, five years, seven years, however long it takes until it feels ready to address its materiality and its, its history. Mm. The house dresses that come from a now closed shop in Harlem, those works were really, I feel like maybe I was, I was dealing with those for like my lifetime. Right. And that mm. when it became clear that this was a material that I could make artwork out of, that was when I was at the studio museum in Harlem in the residency. And it, and it became apparent that like, oh, this is something that I can, that I can do something about, you know, that I can further understand my relationship to the neighborhood, but also to my, my grandmother's and mm. my aunts and like kind of understand a little bit about their relationship to these things that are steeped in a particular kind of economy that are also about uh, a comfort, like physical body comfort. They don't wrinkle, they're easy to wash, you know? So there's like labor associated with them. And that, that labor is also something that is on both ends of the spectrum, you know, as consumers, but then also as, how they're made and how mm -hmm. they're made for a really particular, it's like, you know, garments that are made for a really particular audience or a really particular group of people. And they're not particularly wealthy, 
but yet you have something that's tailored for specific use. So the, the, the kind of gathering of those was really, I think, about understanding the relationship, my relationship with the shop owner, uh, his family, and then also the community, which I felt like I was a part of, even though I didn't necessarily mm. wear them. Mm. I'm struck too to mention here that you use some pretty unusual materials at times. <laughs> I think probably most notably was your brother's wisdom teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Those materials, I feel like, are, I feel like that's like really core to a lot of the things because it's a work that I made actually while I was still in graduate school. I got a phone call from my brother. You know, we were chatting and then he was like, hey, he's like, I got my wisdom teeth pulled. And I was like, oh, I was like, that, that's how do you feel? You know, he's like, uh, he's like, oh no, it's good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm like back, back. But you know, do you, you want them? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. And, and then he just mailed them to me and, and then it just felt appropriate to put them in, in a work. But oftentimes I'll get phone calls from family and people who know me, they'll be like, man, this is an odd, weird object, I think. But I think Kevin would want it. Like, I think this is something that he might do something with. And it's oftentimes something that has some meaning or has some, like, there's mm. some thing within people. They feel something. And maybe they don't want to hang on to it because it's not it's not that big of a feeling, right? It's not like... I'm going to frame this kind of feeling, but it's also, it's just like, I can't just throw this away. So then what? And for me that that's really meaningful because there are a lot of little things like that, that have the potential of generating a conversation or pointing to something that has a much deeper meaning that then allows you to like, feel something or release something can become cathartic or, mm. or it can point to certain issues. So that work ended up, you know, sculpturally, it's hard to like describe it as a sculpture, but it's composed of a carpet padding wrapped up and rolled up and covered in rubber and foam. And it has a pair of my underwear on it. And it looks like a, like a body basically. Mm -hmm. And the teeth are at what you would call the kind of head, right? So like, you know, a seventh mm -hmm. down or something. It feels like the work points to identifying a body. It looks very specifically uh, like a mutilated body. And the the impact of that, right? Like my brother's teeth thinking about a relationship with someone someone who maybe you didn't you didn't know but they're part of your community and the kind of violence that's exerted or has that they've experienced renders them uh no longer a part of the world that you know and and, and in the form that you know and that this level of identification is within is within their bones or within their teeth hmm. yeah like it be then becomes like a really heavy, difficult work to process in that yeah, way. Yeah, and I mean, I haven't seen it in person, but just 
looking at that and, and having experienced other works of yours in person, I can only imagine there's this sort of vibrational experience like we were talking about before yeah. that's probably not dissimilar for people when they watch these videos of violence, whether it's Rodney King being right. beaten or right. George Floyd. Right. That idea to me of how, how one responds to an act of violence or responds to an image of violence. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, as, as an artist kind of making work about these things, you then feel that responsibility or the care that needs to be taken. You know, when I'm looking at certain objects and establishing my relationship to them, it's to, to really understand the, the space that I'm entering into because it's very sensitive. It's like, I know there are things that I want to have conversations around and about, and they're very difficult subjects and they're very difficult things to address them. And I want to use material, right? Like, and I want to use a method that I know how to process the world in, which is through making art. And it could be different for someone else, the way that they process it, mm. you know, that they could, it could be writing, it could be through, social work that they do. Um, for me, it's, it's so much about making things, but that also means that I have to really invest time and understanding around the implications of those things. So for me, it's always like, if I can turn inward and I can look at my close, the things that are close to me and really try to understand those foundationally, it gives me a, a better ability to be able to communicate things because I understand the relationships between mm. these materials and between the the issues that that I'm dealing with, there's an experience there that I can tap into mm. rather than pointing over across, you know, the state line or crossing, you know, somewhere else where something is happening, whether it's in a different country, pointing to that and then trying to say like, well, this is something. It's like, well, what is your relationship to that place? Mm. That's a there's a responsibility there to understand those things. And for me, I, I really feel like I have to take my time and also be very conscientious of those. And then maybe you're not the person to, to, to take on that kind of lead role. And maybe it's about facilitating others, mm. facilitating a space for someone else or a platform for someone else to really address those things. Some of what you're talking about, it seems like, also connects to just understanding who you are in the world, understanding your body, your place, your family. Let's go back to the beginning of your life. I want to, I would love for you to tell me, <laughs> tell me about your parents and, and your upbringing in Virginia. Um, yeah. what, did, what did they do? What was your childhood like? I was born in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I, for the longest time, felt like I was left out of something because most of my family was either born or raised or lived in New York City at some point. So like my mom was born and raised in Harlem along with her siblings. And my my father was born and, and partially raised in Virginia on a farm actually, but then had moved to New York later, you know, in his like teenage years. And both of my brother, older brothers were also born in New York. So I was like, and then y'all came to Lynchburg and then had me like, so we would visit New York a lot 
growing up. So I always had this this understanding of like mm. kind of southern suburban yeah. life, predominantly white community and white town. You know, we'd come for just like a weekend trip. It's like, oh, it's your uncle's birthday or your cousins are having a, a, a party or something. And we would just go up to see someone because they're sick. We would visit family who lived in project houses or uh, lived in the Brownstone in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. You know, there was a point where I was like, I remember saying to my parents, I was like, can we go see touristy things? Because we'd go to New York a lot, but we were like in the neighborhoods. We would never, you know, we would never go to Manhattan. And, you know, driving through Manhattan is always a nightmare. My dad would always, he would always drive and he was like, don't want to deal with it. And we actually like did like a vacation in New York <laughs> where we would like go to the museums and see all these things. Maybe I was... 10 or mm. 11 or something. But being uh, adjacent to New York in some way felt like there was something here that that resonated with me growing up. But my upbringing in Lynchburg was extremely fruitful and was really, I think, gave me a kind of sensibility that I really try to retain. And that's like, there's a certain kind of slowness. There, There is a a kind of common courtesy, you know, it's more like lower middle class understanding, you know, it's not high impact, high density kind of environment. It's like really, actually like really conservative. Mm. And so the things that I learned or the things that I gained, I felt like I really had to extend myself in order to, in order to get, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, you're gonna take drumming lessons in Lynchburg. Like there's one drummer. <laughs> like you know it's like that that would be able to give you the kind of things that you're looking for um it's like one jazz drummer kind of thing and that's not it's not actually true like there are a lot of people who play different kinds of music there but it felt like things were a, a lot more um, intimate intimate yeah, yeah exactly when, when did art or the notion that you could become an artist come into the picture for you really early on I mean, as a kid, I was always drawing, like I always had a sketchbook and my mother got me drawing lessons when I was maybe 10. And the public school system was like kind of a nightmare in terms of advocating for the arts. Hmm. So growing up, I wasn't in like a art class until I was in high school. I had one teacher when I was in elementary school, when I was in like kindergarten or first grade. Outside of that, I didn't have any art classes. When I got to high school, that was when I started, was able to take art classes. And so my mom was very proactive, even early on, about painting and drawing and all of those things. And I really developed my skill set really early on and just knew that this was something that I wanted to do. It wasn't until the reality of like cost and like making a living, you know, when you're like applying for colleges, that it became apparent that like maybe being an artist is not the way to, you know, have a career or, to, or the way to support yourself. And I simultaneously have an interest in cars. My dad's a mechanic. Mm. And it kind of guided me into moving to Detroit 
studying automotive design for a couple years. Mm. And then I realized like, that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But there was a real practical decision around that, that I think was still trying to be connected to the arts and still wanting to like make things, but finding a practical avenue for it. Um, and, and that didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> was your dad's life and career as a mechanic something that you thought about? Has that impacted your art making at all? You know, yes and no. Like it's, <laughs> it, it's impacted my, my making for sure because, you know, he's someone who works with his hands and mm -hmm. he was, he did everything. He would do the plumbing. He built the deck. He would fix the cars. It was all of it. And so I learned a little bit of that. It was like, you know, the first car that you're driving is going to be a stick shift. Like, like all of my, my children, first car is stick shift. Like you need to, you need to know, talk about tactility yeah. and feeling and understanding the machine. So that I think has left a major impression on me. The desire to be a mechanic was never, mm -hmm. I never had that, but I really love to work on things. I love to fix things. And I do a little bit of work on cars myself if it's necessary, right? Like I've changed an alternator before <laughs> and uh, I've changed an oil before, I've changed a tire before, mm -hmm. I've, you know, done mild service. Really the, the translation of labor is something that that's really stuck with me and that I valued and mm. really see it as something that I have a relationship to and that I should respect and that I should address in some way. Mm. I should probably bring up too that you had an exhibition called Sport Utility. Yeah. And in that exhibition, there was a 2008 Cadillac Escalade. The narrative around that work and what that, that object is, it's, I, I've been apprehensive about addressing my relationship to like automobiles in a lot of ways, um, only because I, I think that there's, there's just a lot of sensitivity around, around that. And there's so much to unpack and so much to uncover in a lot of ways in terms of talking about, in this instance, you know, the kinds of racism that exists on, you know, high corporate level um, and how that shapes highway systems, how that shapes labor and manufacturing and labor unions and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the Cadillac was basically, you know, looking at these objects that are symbolic of, of whether it's success, whether it's a, a certain, certain kind of class or, you know, acceptance into society, like Cadillac embodying that, mm -hmm. that it would only make sense that there would be this like racist policy that would exclude black people <laughs> um, in its very early years that then was later lifted that would eventually kind of save mm -hmm. the company due to the fact that a lot of, you know, black working class people couldn't afford homes nor were allowed to own homes. So the next kind of big thing that you could, that you could buy if you were, you earned a certain amount of money and, you know, you wanted to, as a material possession, you know, an automobile is one of these like all encompassing things. And uh, the black community in a lot of ways had been, I think, stereotyped, but then also stigmatized and, and denied 
access to what could be considered elite or luxury across the board. And Cadillac has this connection to the Black community very, very much so. And part of it comes from this denial where a lot of Black working class folks would hire white men to go to Cadillac dealerships Mm. to purchase a car for them. Um, And sometimes would just buy, you know, a used version from, from a white owner. And Cadillac did internal research to understand its demographics. And there were all these black owners and they're like, well, how is that possible because of this policy? Mm. And that in, in an effect was used to lift this policy or this ban. Mm. And so it felt, it just felt right to buy Cadillac and then crush it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was, was just pretty cathartic in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it's also really, it's really complicated because maybe it also points to the kind of inefficiency and absurdity of these sport utility vehicles. Mm-hmm. There's a lot mired into it, um, into the act of doing that from an environmental standpoint, from a sociopolitical standpoint. But doing that was definitely felt like it felt like that was what I had to do. I was like, I was not going to keep that, keep that car. But Mm -hmm. when I bought it, I felt like I felt I was like, I I own a Cadillac. Oh, and I like made a post on it was either Instagram or Facebook at the time. And people were like, congratulations. <laughs> like, oh my God, like you made it. Like, you're like, I'm actually going to be destroying this car. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, not so fast, you know. <laughs> that show, the title Sport Utility, and what it goes into, whether it's the, the untitled petrified piece, which conjoins two NFL helmets colliding, or the, the golf clubs, the Billy's clubs mm-hmm. piece. I even think about the use of Air Jordans in your work. So many things are embedded in each of these objects. I mean, we just unpacked a Cadillac Escalade as an example. Mm. How do you think about reshaping understandings of these cultural touchstones, I guess Mm. we could call them, these objects that we associate so strongly with certain identity? I think it's an exercise in kind of just pulling a, a curtain back on something or just revealing a little bit more about what what it is. Because a lot of it goes, you know, unseen or, mm. you know. I I had no idea that the names of golf clubs were so violent. You know, Striker and it's like Billy Club. You like think about that and then you just you like kind of put two and two together and you're like okay like golf is a predominantly white privileged sport and there's all of these associations and affirmations and violence in order to like play this very kind of casual elite game that's not nearly as violent as actual like you know american football but yet it finds its way into this, Mm. into this sport. And it just rubs me in a weird way to then see like 
a group of older white men using these billy clubs and, you know, striking these balls and and just kind of in their thing. And it, and it just affirms something that is systemic that was kind of shot. It was like, wow, like this is actually the name of this thing. I was like, this isn't, this is going to be an easy piece. <laughs> like I can just like, I can put this together. You know, it was in Florida. They came from Florida. There are a lot of like, this is too easy kind of associations, almost too obvious in how mm-hmm. these things come together, but they, but they have real implications. And I think that those implications reverberate in so many ways and they become muscle memory. They become ingrained and embedded and and unrecognized. And that's the scary part of it, mm. you know, is that it can go undetected and how deeply embedded it is. And it's like, it's just not, it's just unnecessary, right? Like if you, if you need violent names for things to, to make your game more fun, I, then I don't know. I don't know if you'll ever, ever fully enjoy what it is you're doing because it requires so much destruction and so much energy in order to, to, to even have that. Right. And that then that becomes affirmed in every other aspect of it, you know, of your, of your life, your lifestyle, the way that you live, mm. um, the, the, the cues, the things that you look towards in order to, to find fulfillment driven by these levels of violence. Anyway, that exhibition, I think it was really complex in in addressing those things, how things like subliminally are present and then how certain things are also like very obvious and, and very straightforward. Mm. What's so striking about each of these objects is their relationship to the body and particularly, I think it should be said, black bodies. Yeah. And yeah, I wanted to go into your work that you did at Yale for your MFA and and the work that led to your exhibition at the Whitney. There's an incredible story you have and process about kind of, I guess, rediscovering cotton. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could speak to that experience, which involved a family reunion that your family does every year in Valentine's, Virginia. And this was the summer of 2011. Tell me a little bit about seeing cotton in this field and how you reacted to that. Like what happened to you in those moments? Yeah. Cause it seems very transformative. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. The more I look back at it, the more, the more tr- I am able to recognize how transformative it it really was. And then you, you, you start to really think about something that could be so small in a lot of ways can have a larger impact if you allow it. Right. Like I could have not responded, felt a little something and suppressed it. And then just been like, all right, like is what it is. And then, (laughs) and then just like keep moving on. But you made the time. But it was, yeah, it was like making the time and it was actually slowing down and actually being like, wow, like I've never, I've never experienced this before. And um, seeing this field and really it's also, it's like to put the image in your head, 
this is in August and it's, you know, it's really hot in Virginia. Driving to the house requires you driving around this dirt road that's flanked by fields on either side. And then there's pine trees that surround the property. And it's very big, open skies. It's like really blue, really brilliant in that way. And I'm driving down and cotton in this stage is at the last leg of what would be the flowering period. So it blossoms and the flowers, they change colors and they arrive at this kind of pink color before they turn brown and the Mm. bowl starts to develop. So there was no cotton present. It was just the plant flowering. And I knew from the shape of the flower what it was. And I knew from the way that the plant is structured, it's like, this looks like cotton. Like, this doesn't look like soybeans or doesn't look like, you know, tobacco, you know, other things that are typically planted in that in that region. I was like, this looks different. And I looked closer. I was in my car and I looked closer and I and I was just like, this is cotton. Like I could identify it and I knew. But it wasn't like seeing a cotton field, cotton field that Mm. was in full, uh, that was like ready to be picked and harvested. That came later. And that felt like, oh, in order I need to see that and I need to come back down and I need to invest time in it. So the feeling was like, this feels really weird seeing this growing here. You know, this was probably not the first time that cotton has grown on this property. And so that also raised all of these questions about land ownership and like, how long had this property been in our family and thinking about my ancestors and, you know, it just got like really deep, really quickly and I and I needed to unpack it. I needed to know I had questions about things. And in the process of doing that, it led me down a really, really long mm. path that I kind of recognize as like a lifelong project. And even more so a way of redefining my approach to just the world and, and making in mm. general. And it, of course, led to this A View of a Landscape exhibition at the Whitney Museum, which included this cotton gin motor you'd acquired on eBay, which had been used in Maplesville, Alabama from 1940 to 1973. And you encased it in this soundproof glass chamber. It stood in the gallery. And then in this other space, there were these kind of harsh sounds that were fed into that room. I want to hear about the work, but first I'd love for you to describe traveling to Alabama to get this motor and meeting this man, Bobby, who, who had owned it. What was your time with him like? And, and what did you learn on the journey to Alabama? It was transformative for sure. So, okay. Just a, a little bit. I was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. So that was like, a primer being in New Haven, Connecticut was something where like the, the, the people in, in the program, all of that, you felt, you know, there were always, there was always like an opportunity to 
really explore something or, or not opportunity, more like the eagerness to explore something. Mm-hmm. And you saw it as like something would happen and you'd be like really sensitive to those things. And I remember coming back from the family reunion and kind of talking to my classmates about it. And then I went down to Virginia in December to spend time on the property. And, and that's where I like was picking some of the cotton. It had already been picked at that time, but there was a lot left over from that moment. I was talking to a really dear friend of mine, Leon Finley. And in those conversations, it became apparent that this was something much bigger than what I had experienced and what I was already doing. Mm. And I was researching for these, you know, ways of processing the cotton. And that's, that was where the cotton gin uh, motor came into the conversation. And being in New Haven, Eli Whitney, who patented the, the cotton gin, it's like his home. So like there's a museum and mm. there's all kinds of historical information about his life and, and the cotton gin. So long story short, Leon and I were like, we need to go to Alabama to get the motor, but also to just go to Alabama this travel from Connecticut Mm. all the way down through the East coast, through all of these Southern states into the deep South felt like a really important journey, a really important thing to understand. And Bobby was like the whiz or something. You get there to this journey and you're like, this is going to be wild. This is going to be crazy. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like what's going to happen. You know, I had never been to Alabama before. I'd been to Georgia, but never been to Alabama. And this was like rural, you know? And like, I talked to Bobby on the phone a couple of times and he was really generous on the phone, but you know, it's different when you're in person. Arriving and being on his property, he drives up in an all-terrain vehicle and he pulls up to the driver's side and he looks over and I roll a window down and this our like hearts are like racing at this point because just you know what you see coming down is like it's it's the south it's the deep south and he turns over and he says you didn't expect it to be this cold down here now, did you? He's like, you see that tree over there? That's a pecan tree. The frost is keeping it from doing what it's supposed to be doing. Right? Something like that. <laughs> and then he like goes into it. We're like, our jaws are like wide open because, you know, we're getting everything. We're getting his character. We're getting his his accent. We're getting the things that he's talking about as a farmer, as someone who's lived there his whole life. And, and then it was, it was completely immersive um, for the day. And I felt like the whole point of that, of going down there was to understand the context for which this motor was coming out of. And it was, it was full. Like he was just telling stories the whole time. Mm. And of course, the years the motor was in use were such pivotal years for 
civil rights for massive shifts happening at the mid-century in America? I mean, it, it starts with World War II, it gets through civil rights, and it gets into Vietnam, and everything between all of that, this thing is just operating, just running, just processing, processing and processing. And where did that cotton go? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can draw all of these lines. You know, you think about the economy. I even think about the the highway system, you know, and the further development of industrialization and baby boomers. It's just like everything was happening while this thing was processing it, and which I feel like, you know, there was a lot of growth within the country. And I felt like, oh, this thing was kind of like a witness. And its role was to produce one kind of thing. It was very limited. But it it gives the permission to build those associations and to really try to understand mm. what the broader context is. And so I always felt like this work would just take on so much more than actually I'm capable of of processing and understanding, but it's worth mm. going through. And then in some way, understanding it from, from my perspective as a, what, what, what's my generation? I'm like a, born in 85, you know, I guess I'm a millennial. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm like, 85 too. So, you know, so it's like, so it's like, what is that relationship? What is, how, yeah. how are these things impacting my mm. life mm. in a lot of ways? How did this particular work, the fact that it got to be presented in the way it did at the Whitney and just the way that you structured it as the artist, reshape your life, reshape your thinking about your own work, your own practice as an artist. I mean, as an outsider, it does seem like it had a very catalytic effect and it's not lost on me that exploring the terrain around cotton was a way for you as an artist of also kind of like harvesting seeds for these new ideas and the, the sort of like directions that came out of this project. Yeah. I think about the motor actually as like a driver for a lot of it. And obviously with the cotton thinking about, yes, the spreading of these seeds and this sort of generative quality. I think what I'm really trying to do is understand these things in portions, Mm -hmm. right? Try to really take and and then also collectively involve as many people as I can in order to really try to understand what's happening or understand like what the impact of of this this legacy is mm. in maybe a way that that I'm not necessarily seeing out there seeing it in a lot of different ways and seeing how people cross paths in ideologies yeah. I mean, I, it's, I get, I'll get lost in it really trying to process everything mm. at once. Well, I think it's worth mentioning you do have a book coming out 
exploring this project more in depth and it includes a double LP. So it's yeah. like, it's kind of bringing a lot of these elements of, of your work together. And you worked with many writers and musicians on this project. People like Fred Moten, Kelsey Liu, who contributed sound contributions. How do you view this project and, and how did you choose these contributors? So I, I had wanted to produce a publication as another part or another extension on, on this exploration. And I would say if, if the motor and the sound chamber and that installation is like one part, mm. then another part are the sculptural objects that are being produced with cotton and specifically works that are dealing with certain events that surrounded the acquisition of, of the motor, the cotton itself, the family reunion, these things. The publication was another part that I wanted to realize that would incorporate writing and reflection around, mm. you know, I'm going to say this a broadly like American landscape. Right. But really looking at it through the lens of the work, but then also through music, through certain histories, whether it's musicians or it's through labor or it's through um, other artists. And then also allowing a, a group of, I would say like like-minded musicians, artists who, who really take their, their practice not just seriously, but they take it with amount of care that extends beyond just the formalities of it, right? They like really consider social impact, a much broader impact without sacrificing either or. And, and inviting people to, to really process this stuff alongside me in the ways that they feel comfortable in. So the audio that the musicians have contributed comes from samples that were pulled from the motor when it was running. And they've all created their own compositions with that stuff. More Mother, Laurel Halo, Eli Kessler, Jaylen, you mentioned Kelsey Liu, Ralph Lemon and Okwi Akpakvasili. Robert Lowe. I mean, it's like the, the list of people is actually like really amazing to think about because genre wise, it's across the board. Jason Moran. It's a really remarkable thing to listen to and how people are approaching this. But as a companion to these texts, you know, you have Thomas Lax, uh, Mark Godfrey, Andy Battaglia, Daphne Brooks, Fred Moten, as you mentioned, uh, Ralph also contributed a text and all of the ideas that are going into this, Adrian Edwards. And I, I mean, I, I, I feel like I should name every single person, but I'm like leaving them out because I'm it's, it's going to be too much for me to like really to manage. But I'm interested in how all of these varying ideas around the work and around these issues in particular, what it looks like, like what 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 is that? And maybe from there, there is a way to better understand what the landscape is. It's like looking out on the horizon 
and making out certain details and certain things that you know and other things that you don't know. Mm. And the survey is really about that. It's really about trying to continuously look and continuously build a relationship to it. So even the ideas that these contributors are bringing to the table around these subjects, I think it's going to give a view of a landscape, Yeah, (laughs) which is like really maybe not what I imagined was even possible uh, going into this, you know, going down to Alabama and picking this motor up. Um, But I think that it begins to do that when you give room and space for, for people to really delve into this, this little bowl, this little, this little budding seed. And time. (laughs) Right. Hearing you describe this, I'm thinking of your resin slab works which are kind of landscapes in their own way. And, you know, resin is sort of this way of creating frozen time. And I think engaging in this idea of a void or what's not there as much as what's there. It also speaks to this idea of body and body language that we were sort of talking to, muscle memory. Mm -hmm. All of this is sort of embedded in these objects, these slabs. How do you think about resin and why resin and what effect do you think resin is creating for you as an artist on these works? Yeah, it's a good question because it's, it's one that I'm constantly thinking about. The original use of it for me was to bond things together, Mm. to be able to, to take these objects that I had some affinity for and embed them, encase them, preserve them, to be able to coat the surface or or protect the surface in some way. But then also like what it looks like. It's like, I'm processing this object. You coat something in resin, you dip it in resin. It drastically changes what that object was and what it can potentially do. And it as an industrial material that is used widely for so many different things that we experience on a daily basis, all kinds of plastics and surfaces and household products. It felt synonymous to a lived life, like Mm. something that is just like, this is something that's integrated into our, our existence and our understanding right now. And in a lot of ways, like environmentally, it becomes very problematic. So what does that then mean? Because the resin I use very specifically is a polyurethane and polyurethane is it's organic, right? Like this stuff breaks down mm. over a long period of time. It's a really long period of time. And what is the relationship between, you know, this very organic material that goes through a kind of industrial process and its impact and its effect on us. And for me, it's the, it's the headliner in like my dad's, like 74 Nova or whatever that comes, you know, the headliner comes down and the little stuff like drips, you know, the dust, Mm. you know, puts a coating on your hair and you (laughs) sneeze because of it, you know, Um, or the seat that splits open and you see the foam underneath Mm. it, right? That, that polyurethane or the revealing of that made me feel like, well, I want this material to be, on the surface and I want it to bond things and I want it to embed things and I want to use it in all of these different ways that 
literally puts you in touch with this other thing that's very much so everywhere. So it feels like to me, like it's a really common material that I've been using and it's evolving. I think, I think how I'm using it and how I'm thinking about it as a sculptural process Hmm. with casting the different shapes that you make and the different kinds of impressions that it gives. That's how I've been thinking about it for a really long time. Hmm. So I want to end on an idea that's sort of a meta way to end, but it's this idea of repetition and looping. (laughs) I wanted to loop back to some things you were saying earlier. I mean, so much of what drummers do, DJs do is about repetition and looping. And it's also a motif, I guess, if I can call it that in your work. Yeah. So I guess what role across time do you think repetition plays in forming collective memory in defining our histories and ultimately in shaping the planet. Wow. Well, I, mm. so there, there are a few things that come to mind and I really kind of think about the difficulty of repeating something over and over in the same way that it originally existed. You know, like William Basinski or something like that the loop, even the loop itself, you know, shifts. It, it slightly changes. Uh, And it may be subtle and it may be almost inaudible, but in the way that it cycles over again, you have the previous time as like a marker and as something that has actually left an impression. So it, it almost can't loop in the same exact way. But what you see is, is the effect or the impact of that. It's legible. There are consequences. And yeah, like I, I feel like, you know, if I were to apply that to historical events, it's something that we have to really understand that it's not just that like, oh, history repeats itself kind of thing. It's more like it comes back around in a different form. A mutation. It mutates. And within that mutation, what's important is that we're able to develop the muscles to understand how it mutates. So you have to understand maybe what it was in its origin in order to be able to read what the mutations or the the shifts or the changes are. And that it's not really a matter of if it was the same or not, it's just about its path or its journey. And that the loop, when you're listening to it, it's like if you don't know it's a loop or if you're not recognizing it's a loop, then it then it just feels linear. It doesn't feel like a loop at all. And loops oftentimes do that because they they're constantly they're shifting, they're mutating. They're not crossing over the lens in the same way every single time or they're not doing the same thing every single time. And I think that you know, even in in music performance or composition 
It's like, even when like you have the best performer who can render it the same way every single time, it's still not the same. What I like to think about is then what is the repetition and then what is the loop? And that has to go to the core essential of intention, its mission or its goal. What are we trying to accomplish? What are we actually trying to loop? What kind of experience are we actually trying to loop over and over again? And then that, that maybe that gets to something because then you can then say, if the physical form of this thing is evolving and changing, then if you understand what's driving it, that is potentially where the loop is. So like, if I were to use William Basinski as a, as an example, it's like he maybe he's actually the loop and not the thing that he's producing or the thing that's coming out of that. Maybe he's trying to constantly get back to something and get back to something, the reiteration of, you know, of the importance of these subtleties or time, the insistence on coming back to something over and over and over again, even if the coming back doesn't yield the same result every single time. Mm. But I don't think you are able to understand that unless there is time, time passes and you're able to then reassess or understand that, you know, the, again, this accumulation, the subsequent residue or whatnot. Kevin, this is amazing. (laughs) Thanks for coming in. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Extra thanks to our season three sponsor, Alang Anzuna. Alang Anzuna's watchmakers are characterized by diligence, patience, artistry, a pursuit of innovation, and the persistent belief that everything is possible, followed by the ambition to achieve it. You can find out more about Alang and Zuna at www.alange-soehne.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Listen to our other podcast, At a Distance, by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin, and this episode was produced by Tiffany Zhao, Mike Lala, and Pat McCusker. 